Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. Jumping into a short little series for the next few weeks because it's interesting times in our nation. There's this um, statement around living in these times. It's called VUCA. Anyone heard? VUCA means it's the age of the world of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. That's what it means to live in 2019. And I want to ask you a question, a question that God asked one of his most profound prophets, the prophet Elijah. And I'd love you to take out your phones or take out pen or write just this question down. Even if you take no other notes, if you don't remember anything, I want you to be able to ask this, answer this question. See, that's what I can't do. I can't answer it for you. I can just ask the question and ask God to show you and lead you. But it's this question. What are you doing here and your name? Can you write your name there? What are you doing here and your name? Not a question I'm asking you, but a question that God asks his prophets. And I think in these times of VUCA, God is asking us, what are you doing here, Mark? What are you doing here, Dimitri? What are you doing here? And we'll discuss what that means a little bit more, but it's an interesting time to be alive. There's new normals everywhere. Um, what's up used to be down, and uh, what used to be frothing was a dog with rabies. Now, Jerry told me it's when you're really excited. I'm learning new things. It's frothing. Like, oh, that means excited. He's not actually sick. And um, it, 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 if, if it's what used to be lit, like a candle was lit, now that means awesome. If Stay with me. I'll teach you. I've got teenagers. And... Um, in old days, in jobs, it was like work really long, 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours. Now you're reading books like how to have a four-hour work week and kill it. It's like that's the biggest book on New York bestseller right now, the four-hour work week. The world is changing. Just if you needed to come to church to know that, welcome. World politics, economics, religion, sexuality, um, popularity, gender, humor, sports. It's an interesting time to be alive. Anyone agree? So it's an interesting time to be a Christian. Um, means many different things to many different people these days. As we understand and navigate that there's many different forms and versions seemingly of something of the truth that God's called us to. It's an interesting time. The popularity stats of the church are down, seemingly. And sometimes we have in the story God has called us, we're no longer the leading morality voice that the church used to have. Actually, most of the time when there was, the church was in the majority, now it's in the minority, and we're understanding it's interesting times to be a Christian. It's interesting times to be South African. And we are speaking in these next few weeks about how to build a nation. What does it look like to be a person, not just a people or a nation that builds a nation? What does it look like to build a nation? And to live in South Africa right now, we are more distressed and challenged than ever, I think. If you haven't been distressed or disturbed or felt yourself anguished in the last few weeks by our nation, I'm telling you, you don't know what's going on. And I'm not telling you this morning I'm going to answer every challenge. I'm not trying to settle every concern. I'm saying we need to be aware. We need to understand the times in which we live, have our focus and our guide and the master button of our lives well and truly established. And as long as we don't know what any other button is doing, as long as we know what that button is doing in our lives. You got the master button there, Ben. You ready? Don't touch it. And, um, but rather than unite, I feel like the challenges, the, the challenge, there's more division, there's more chaos, there's more all sorts going on. It's interesting times to be alive. Stay with me. It's going to get better. 
And uh, you've got these great new rules you need at dinner parties when you go. As long as we don't talk politics, religion, sexuality, gender, anything, we can talk about everything else. We'll have a great evening together. It's interesting times to be alive. What about it's interesting times to live in the city of Cape Town? If you don't know, the army are in our city. It's a radical thing. It's not an everyday, every week occurrence. The army are trying to bring peace. And there's challenges. And women are feeling unsafe. And people are being found taking photos of school. If this, none of this disturbs you, I feel like we've got to get disturbed a little bit this morning. But answer the question, what are you doing here, Mark? What are you doing here, Wayne? It's a question God's man gets asked. Can I pray? Jesus, as we come this morning, I pray, have all the glory, all the honor. I pray, speak to every heart this morning, to the disturbed and distressed, speak. I'm not asking you to blind us from the realities of our world. I'm asking you to speak. I'm asking you to bring the peace of heaven the knowledge that the King of Kings is on His throne. Settle us so that, God, we can be of use and we can be of value in building this nation at this time. We want to be part of your answer, your solution, and your promises to this nation. We worship your King. Amen. In Acts 17, Paul says this. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. What he's saying is, he says there's times in history and places that God will orchestrate and facilitate man to live. What he's saying is that you're not here by mistake. You're not here as the result of some Dutch ancestry that moved to South Africa, changed the spelling of a surname. Now you're called Van Pletsen and no one spells it right. And you're just in Africa. Some dude left Holland years ago. Actually, my ancestors were supposedly pirates on the Rhine, but that's not important. And we can read this and say, well, it must have been going very well for Paul to say that. That sounds like something someone would say who's at the top of life, at the top of the hill, the top of the mountain. Things are good. Well, let's just look at that same chapter a little earlier. In verse um, 5 in Thessalonica, but other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. This is just a few verses before. This is Paul's journey. He says, I was in Thessalonica, little important brackets, because God allots appointed times and appointed places, and they rioted. Anyone seen a riot lately? It's happening. Berea, verse 13, but when the Jews in Thessalonica heard that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. But that doesn't just happen in South Africa. That happens here too. Just before, he says, you're in the right place. In verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Oh, I want to get out of here. The city's full of idols. And Paul's saying, I'm in the right place. God's called me to minister and have impact here. I can only preach the word of God and say, David's army is laid out. And, he, and they speak of these guys called the sons of Issachar. And they're not a big tribe. Actually, they're the smallest tribe by far numerically. But as they're lining up David's army and they just get 200 dudes in the army, this is what is said of them. It says, from Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command. These 200 men who didn't just come along with the story, they were well-trained, they were educated. It says they, 
understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Part of the background to that story is they had navigated the season between Saul's craziness as the previous king went a little mad. They had navigated that season. They hadn't jumped. They hadn't made any radical statement. They'd navigated that season. And as David comes in to be king, they throw their weight behind it because they know this is good for Israel. They make a good decision. They understand the times. They walked it well. And that's why it says they understood the times in which they lived. And I think it's important for us to understand the times that we live in. Now, 2019, oh, if only I'd lived however many years ago. No, I mean, this week was the recollection of, uh, of, of September 11th. That happened a few years ago. And there were a couple of wars a couple of years back. I was in Churchill's war rooms not long ago. Our world has seen radical lows. And the temptation is always to think, why now? Why me? Why here now? No, understand the times and have answers for your nation. That's what the Bible says and the encouragement. It's an incredible thing. They, they understood the public affairs, and it says this, the temper of their nation. What's the temper of our nation? People are angry. People are challenged. People are fearful. Had the home of people who've had to leave one nation called Zimbabwe, rebuild their life over the last 18 years in this nation to a point where they are doing incredibly well only to now be faced with some realities that look similar. Some of you are like looking, why is he speaking about this? Just tell me about Jesus. No, if Jesus, the master button, doesn't have impact on how I view my everyday and my reason for living, I'm not living for him. That's how it affects you and I today. And that's how I get anchored. I don't get anchored by a politician shouting any truth that I can hang my hat on. I don't get anchored by Iran going up and down. I don't get anchored by better statistics from the police. I get anchored by Jesus. And I find my way and my reason for being here today at this time in Jesus. Otherwise, I'm just a wave. So what's our role? Well, I would say... Our role has always been the same. We have the Spirit of God inside of us. Riots was nothing new to the Apostle Paul. Everywhere he went, they rioted. They, they, call, they rioted. Challenge came. But I honestly believe this morning I want to position us and I get us on the right posture. We can't fix everything, but you know what we can do? We can be of the right posture to be those who can help fix and change this nation. We can be influencers in the climate of this nation. Climates that go up and down and have all sorts of things going on. We can speak into the climates. I've walked into rooms with husbands and wives throwing each thing, things across the room at each other. And not because of my wisdom, but because of the Spirit of God that comes into that place when we start surrendering. Peace can come in a chaotic room. That's just a room. What about a nation? When people start to pray, when people start to get caught up by a kingdom of God, what happens when we find our place in that place of surrender? Could we be the people who change economic climates? It's Susanna. I can't. We've got a lady. Rihanna Maria, eight years ago, started something called Swap Shop in Danoon. As God gripped an English lady who moved to South Africa because her husband promised she could live in a golf estate. She encountered Jesus. And because she encountered Jesus, she encountered a love for people who needed him. And so she started driving into Danoon every day. Started something called Danoon Swap Shop. 
which is an upliftment program. It's not a handout. It's a hand up that people can gather recycling. And it is a full time. There's a lady in, who's built a house in the Eastern Cape from that project because God got a hold of a lady's heart sitting in a golf estate. They've moved to England. And the lady put her hand up and said, well, actually, right now, I've just resigned my job to start a new company, but I can jump into that mess. And she, a white Afrikaans lady, jumps in her car and drives to Danun every week. And you know what's happened since she's been there in the last six weeks? It's become profitable. It's been struggling to be profitable. It's become, they've seen the life of God come. They've seen peace come. There was theft going on for days. She just started teaching people about how this is not good for us and what God wants to do with us. Why? Because the climate can change when God puts his woman, his man into scenarios. The climate begins to change. Economics can change. Education can change. Politics can change. I'm not trying to G you up, but I just know that the climate is set very low right now. I just know from every conversation that the believer's conversations I feel and concerned are not at the right pitch. And God's saying, will you fix the master button again? Will you allow me to speak again? And all my job is to ask questions like, are we crazy enough? We did a series called, Are You Crazy? Who calls a church preaching series? No wonder people don't come sometimes. I'm like... But the preachers was, are you crazy? And it was about faith. And is there the question in our lives where people ask us, are you crazy? Are you, are you crazy? When you're laying hands on someone who's got a diagnosis of death over them, if people aren't asking you, are you crazy? Something's not right. In this nation right now, would we be those who would lay our hands and our hearts on the heartbeat of this nation and say, God, Will we be accused of having crazy faith in the King of Kings? What about the men and women from Cape Town who understood the times and knew what Israel should do? That's us. And I ask you today, what are you doing here? It's a question I want to ask. And we enter the story in 1 Kings 17. We're going to read from 1 Kings chapter 19 now. I want to give you a bit of context. In walks Elijah. He's God's man. He's the prophet. He just walks in. His first encounter, like, guys, there's going to be no rain until I say it. You know what happened? No rain, no water. Elijah, the man. People stop up. There's some something going on in this guy's life. I mean, ravens start feeding him. Birds just start bringing him food. You can just imagine the God confidence in his life. Like, water, boom. Ravens, boom. Food's happening. I'm the guy in this nation. People start listening. I mean, it's, it's because of Elijah's decree. A famine comes to the land, and the king's looking for him. He wants to kill him. And then we see in Elijah 18, in 1 Kings verse 18, it's probably one of my favorite, favorite scenarios happens in the Bible. And they're looking for Elijah. He says, guys, I'm handy right here. Ravens are bringing me food. I'm right. And he faces up to the 400 prophets of Baal. Remember, he's just one guy. He's just God's prophet. And on the other side, 400 prophets of Baal. So he says, okay, let's have a duel, my God versus yours. And they say, that sounds easy. Says, all we're going to do, we're going to bring a sacrifice, bring the sacrifices, we're going to cut them out, we're going to lay them out, we're going to lay wood out, and we're just going to ask our gods to lay out fire. So the 400 prophets of Baal, they prepare the wood, it's nice, dry, I don't know, totally forgot all kinds of wood right now. It's trying to, Roy Kranz, is that a good one? While Michael brushes his beard. And, um, and they, they lay out this dry, dry, ready. I mean, you literally just have to blow on it. It'll catch a light. It's such good wood. They lay it out. They put this out. Everything is perfect. And then they start chanting. Ho, 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 ho. I don't, I don't know how they were chanting. But, but I watched Last of the Mohicans. That's what they did. Ho, 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 ho. And, and they were chanting. And it says they chanted from morning to lunch. And nothing happened. 
And, and, and Elijah just shouts, come on, boys, try harder. And so they start cutting themselves. And the blood from their self-cutting starts going into this mix. And for all day till late at night, they walk around. Ho, ho, ho. I don't know how they worship Baal, but 400 dudes chanting around this like fire pit, trying to get a fire started, going, Baal, set it on fire, but we're dying here. And nothing happens. Nothing happens. So Elijah says, guys, step aside. He calls the crowd over to this. I said, come here. He says, hey, prepare the fire. Just use this cheap wood. Give me a cheap wood. I don't know. Wattle. Wattle. <laughs> then he says, boys, he sits back. I mean, he's like the ultimate gangster. He says, throw water over those five. Water, boys, water. They throw water once. Hey, more. Next round, water again. One more time, three times, they throw water all over the wood. Who knows water, wood, and fire don't work particularly well. But he's so confident that God wants to do something in this nation that is so depraved and chaos is happening, that God wants to reveal his glory. Then he stands back and he prays, O God of heaven, would you reveal your glory? And boom, boom, fire upon fires. And 400 prophets of Baal are killed in that moment. I don't know about you, but if that was me, if God had called me with the largest anointing, and I would have felt like, yes, I'm the top of the world here. I can do this thing. God is unbelievable. And the very next chapter, let me tell you what plays out. The very, very next chapter. I mean, sometimes we think that it's how can Sunday and Monday be so far apart? How can um, half past 10 walking out or whatever time you walk out of church, 10 o'clock, how can 11 be so far apart from 10 o'clock? How can it be so, it's like, no, well, let's understand because here's Elijah, God's man, Chapter 19, verse 1, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. He gets a message to Elijah and this is Elijah's message, not, he says, I'm going to die unless I get to you first by tomorrow because you're going to die the way they died. Who knows that wouldn't bring comfort in the morning. You wake up, just check your messages. You're going to die. Where is Liam Neeson when you need him? And then it says in verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Let's just stop for a second. Two verses have happened. He was the guy that put 400 prophets to death. And now he's running for his life because he got a message from old Jezzy. Jezebel. Stay with me. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left the servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I'm trying to make sure that you know it was only the day before he was God's man moment of the hour. He was the guy. If social media was happening, he would have been all over it. If there were billboards in those days, he would have been on them in a white suit declaring something, he would have been that guy. And yet, one day later, he's under a broom bush. I don't know what that is. Michael probably knows. And um, he's under there waiting to die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. You know, that's what a dog does. That's what a dog does when it wants to die. It goes under a bush, goes away, finds a secluded place, and 
and passes away. Not a son of God, not a powerful prophet of God. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. It's like, thanks for the food. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the, angel, the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Remember, not long before, God's man, moment of the hour, now in a cave, Waiting to die. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood in the mouth of the cave. Then a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I read this and I felt like God asked me a question. What are you doing here, Mark? What are you doing here? What will the things that you're experiencing, the things you're seeing, the things you're reading now, I'm not asking you to hide your head. I'm asking you, will you allow the whispers of heaven to speak louder than the hurricanes and the shouts of this world? What are you doing here, Mark? What's your role in the city? Six years ago today, we moved to Cape Town and took over a church, not just to lead a church and do merry Christian things, but to see the kingdom of God advance in the city. What are you doing here, Mark? God asks. Maybe he's asking you and I because we've seen amazing victories and yet fear seems so close at the door and always not far away. Is that true of you? Maybe it is of me. I had a friend of mine I've walked with for 20 years, had the privilege of being a part of his discipleship, had the privilege of standing next to him at his wedding as his best man. And one of our very good friends passed away this week from cancer, 43 years old, two young kids, And I could hear my friend who knows God, who's been in the presence of God, I could hear a shaking in him. Not an emotional shaking, a shaking. Like, how could this happen? And I had to pull him back and say, do you remember what God has done? Do you remember what God has spoken? And do you remember the fact that God said good people will leave this earth sometimes, but Jesus is still in control. And the master button volume has to be turned up again. We all need that. We all need it. doesn't make the pain go away. It doesn't stop the tears. It doesn't stop the necessary mourning journey. It doesn't stop all that. What it stops is my wandering into a cave. So God has to come and find me and ask me, what are you doing here? Because the next time someone gets cancer, am I just going to remember Bruce's face? who's passed away now and is with Jesus, or I'm going to remember that Jesus touched and touched and healed and called us to do the same and get on the front foot to see the kingdom of God come. What's your posture? See, I think like Elijah, we're all one enemy away sometimes from running to a cave, finding a nice tree, seemingly a place of comfort, and lying down. 
maybe going to sleep, maybe waiting rather just to die. Sounds good. Psychologists would call it fight or flight. They would say you've learned it. It's learned behavior from past experience. And in past experience, if you've navigated through and you fought and you won in the battle, you'll learn to fight again. And so fighters learn to fight. Fighters grow up in areas and, and some run and some learn to fight. And your fighter has learned to fight over many, many battles, learning to fight. And there's another response psychologists call flight, where I'm not a fighter. I remember once Judah and Ben were fighting and we just heard from the lounge, Stop it, Judah. I'm a lover, not a fighter. And he's right. He's not a fighter. He is a lover. And so we learn these behaviors and our experiences and what we've seen determine how we respond. That's what psychologists would say. You see, the challenge was that Elijah had seen something different. Elijah had fought. He'd won. 400 versus one, not good odds. And yet the God of all glory was upon him and moved a mountain. God shows up and asks a really interesting question at this time of Elijah, like, not wake up, get back, get back on your horse, I'm king. He just says, what are you doing here? You ask him that question more than once. He says, you're going to go back to the cave? You're going to flight now? I mean, yes, two days ago you fought and we won and God got all the glory and everyone was hashtag Elijah. I'm trying to keep it a little loud and fluffy because you got very serious on me very quickly. So it's easy to me look down because you all look at me like this. Stop talking, Mark. We know there's an elephant in the room. We live here too. See, it becomes more of a missional evangelical question. It becomes more of when the emphasis is more of what are you doing here? See, there's two questions in the same question. What do you what are you doing here, and what are you doing here? So it's about location. It's about what you're doing. And when it becomes not just about here, when it becomes about what I am doing, it becomes more of a missional, what's the mission of my life? What am I doing here? Not what am I doing here? You hear the difference? Sorry, I'm not an English teacher. So you've got to help me. What are you doing here? And, and please, if you are moving overseas, if whatever, if that's the journey, then awesome. All I'm saying is to you, and psychologists call it fight or flight. The Bible calls it fear or faith. You need faith to live in this nation now. You need faith. I mean, you need faith to live anywhere, but we're here, so we're going to say it here. You need faith to live here now. You need courage to live here. And I'm telling you, when I have faith in Jesus, when my eyes are fixed in Jesus, I find faith for things that I never knew I had faith for or courage for. Don't worry. Stay focused. See, God speaks to us. Says, I've, he speaks to Elijah, and he keeps speaking to us. says, I've given you a mission, Elijah. What are you doing here? This wasn't the mission I gave you. And what's the instruction? He says, get back in the presence of God on the mountain. I, I love this. And uh, Isaiah 55 is the the the... The classic scripture in the NIV puts it this way. Uh, his ways are not my ways, and his thoughts are not my war thoughts, are higher than my thoughts. But the Passion Translation uh, writes it this way. Verse 1, God, listen to my prayer. Don't hide your heart from me, and I will cry out to you. Don't come close to me and give me your answer. Some of you are like, 
That's you, Mark. I'm telling you, don't come give me your answer. Here I am, moaning and restless. I'm preoccupied with the threats of my enemies and crushed by the pressure of their opposition. They surround me with trouble and terror. In their fury, they rise up against me in an angry uproar. My heart is trembling inside my chest as the terror of death seizes me. Fear and dread overwhelm me. I shudder before the horror I face. I say to myself, if only I could fly away from all of this. If only I could run away to the place of rest and peace. I would run far away where no one would find me escaping to a wilderness retreat. If you offered many South Africans and Cape Tonians a wilderness retreat right now, I think many would take it. But I love the way, and the reason I use this translation is the other translations just put it there. He just writes there in italics, pause in his presence. And everything changes. He says, I will hurry off to hide in the higher place, into my shelter, safe from this raging storm and tempest. He's not saying there's no tempest. He's not saying there's no storm. He's not saying there's no chaos. He's saying, I'm going to pause in the presence of the Almighty. Just going to pause. And I'll hurry to the higher place. Caves always seem inviting when we're in a storm. Right now, I think there's a question, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And I just want to use the example in the next five minutes of a man who faced a similar storm. And God asked, I think, a similar question, a man named Nehemiah. An Old Testament picture of Jesus, a redeemer, a rescuer. Nehemiah's in a foreign country, been serving for 12 years as a cupbearer. His job is to drink the wine that gets given to the king to make sure the king is not going to get poisoned. Not a cool job, but an important job. And for 12 years, he serves. And it says for 12 years, he didn't come to work with one day of sad face. I mean, that's literally what it says. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, great name, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burnt down with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. This man in exile, essentially a slave, knew that when he got the worst news of his life because he asked two questions, how are the people and how is the place? He says he got on his knees and he wept and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed before the God of heaven. All I'm trying to do today is provoke your posture to be one of what God calls us to is to be a people who will mourn, who will fast, who will pray, but do it all before the God of heaven. We can mourn, fast, and pray before other kings and other gods and other authorities. We can stand at buildings and shout our claims, our concerns, but it'll do nothing for the master button of this world, our nation, maybe even my heart or yours. But when I mourn, fast, and pray and weep, before the God of heaven, it has the potential to change everything. And this guy's life is fantastic. The king goes, but why are you sad? Why are you depressed? The king asks him. He says, why did he ask him that? For 12 years, he'd never had a sad day. 
But because he hears this news, he comes in and he is perfectly positioned as the cupbearer to go back. Why? Because the cupbearer had access to the king. And so when God asks him, what are you doing here? Nehemiah says, well, I'm just the cupbearer. No, that's the wrong answer. You're someone who has access to places no one else does. You're someone who knows what it is to enter the presence of God. You're someone who can change this nation. You know what happens? The city had lain in ruins for 112 years. 112 years is a long time. And in 52 days, it got rebuilt. In 52 days. 52 days, a whole wall and city and all the walls that were low got rebuilt. And I want to just jump ahead. There were a whole bunch of other things I was going to say this morning. But verse 13 of chapter 4, what's happened is he's gone. He's been released. The king just says, doesn't just say go. He says, I'm going to send you all the resources with you to see your nation rebuilt. The king has no interest in that nation being rebuilt, in those walls going up. Then he goes and he spies out the land. And night after night, he prays and spies out the land. And then the kings join him, and in chapter 3, you see the next to him, and next to him, and next to him, as all these people and tribes, little ones, big ones, older ones, younger ones, they all get stuck in to rebuilding the wall, and God uses a man who was in exile to do it. And this is what happens in chapter 4. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When your enemies heard that when the, our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to the wall, each to, their own, to his own work. What's the mandate of the church? To be placed at the lowest parts of the wall. And to fight with the weapons of God in prayer, but also to pick up the tools that God has given us and rebuild the walls. I feel like a failure many days at this. And yet I read the word of God. And I know that I know that if not this mandate, if not this mission. And here's what the enemy is whispering in your ear already. You're too old. You're too white. You're you're not educated enough. You're not positioned. You're not a cupbearer. I'm not sure that's the answer. I think the voices of fear start shouting loud. And right now, the giant of fear is shouting like a Goliath at the church right now. I'm not worried how the world responds. I'm only worried how the church responds. When the church responds to the Goliaths of our times in faith. We don't have to have all the answers and we don't have to have all the resources. We just need faith. When we respond like that and we position ourselves and not just ourselves, but our families at the lowest parts of the wall, that's a challenge. It's a challenge. I found myself driving through our city the other day and just weeping. People are sore. What's the climate of your city? Will you feel it? But then will you weep and pray and fast and mourn and do whatever you need to do before the God of heaven? Because there is only one who can change it. There's only one. 52 days. 
You know what the amazing thing about the 52 days in Nehemiah? There was no big miracle. What do I mean? There was no angel who pitched up and built the wall for them. There was no hurricane that blew over the wall and woof, next morning it's up. There were just people who were prepared to get stuck in, in the lowest parts of the wall and build it up because they had their eyes fixed on Jesus. And yes, this is a challenge, and I know it's not the one you wanted to hear this morning, and it's not the question you wanted to get. What are you doing here? Businessmen, teachers, maybe you're retired. Maybe you've got enough money in the bank to go to any country in the world right now, and it looks good. <laughs> At least we're being honest, Barry. I don't know what your situation is. I just know. And God's placed me and my family in this nation at this time. And I think he's placed you. And if we would respond in faith, not denying fear, not denying the realities, not sitting here going, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look. No, look and look hard and let your looking lead you to praying and mourning and fasting and crying out before the living God on your knees. I'm looking at headmasters of schools and I'm looking at young entrepreneurs and I'm looking at people who have emphasized. I say, what will you do with your prayers in your morning? What will you do and where will you bring them to? Because right now my concern is on a Monday we sing songs, on a Sunday we sing songs of praise. On a Monday we're on Facebook, hopeless, hopeless. Where can I get out? Where do I get a gun? You know what I'm doing? And, and if, if that's you, I'm just being honest. Unfollow, unfollow, unfollow. Because I want the word of God to determine my story. Because you know who's been faithful to me? This king. You know who's healed and restored and put life in a womb where there was no life and healed people who had diagnosis before. And even though my friend Bruce passed away, I've seen God heal. And I will keep declaring his purpose and his promise. Why? Because this God is faithful. This God is glorious. This God is higher than Cyril Ramaphosa, but I'm called to pray for Cyril Ramaphosa because I think God has placed him at this time, at this. I've got to believe that. That's what the Word of God says, by the way. It says pray for them. Declare the purpose of them. Become the difference and build the lowest parts of the wall and do it brick by brick. Stop looking at the wall and going, oh, it's so high. It's so broken. Have you seen the deficits? Yes, I read the news. And I read the business news and I listen to all of them. Then what I go is I get on my knees and I weep and I mourn before the God who can do only what he can do. And I'm not trying to G you up. I'm trying to get your posture from one of fear, which leads me to a cave, to one of faith, that even though I'm on the mouth of a cave, I'm pushing into the God of glory. How will we build a nation? One brick at a time with faith. One brick at a time. Can we stand together? Maybe if we can have the band up. Uh, I'm really not angry. Something like he looks angry today. What did Candace do? She must have dinged the car badly. I'm not angry. I love this nation. I've had the privilege of traveling to many, many countries. I love this nation. I love South Africa. And there is a giant that's shouting at the people of this nation. Every race, every color, every age, every financial bracket is shouting. Get back in a cave. Run.
And a position of faith isn't just, well, I don't have money to leave, so I have to stay anyway, Mark. You stuck with me. No, that's not faith. Faith is getting on your knees. Actually, I'm going to ask us to do that right now. If you've got bad knees, you're welcome to a chair. But I think sometimes we've got to do something that's out of, I want to see change in our nation. He says, get on your knees. And Nehemiah wept and he mourned, but he prayed. I would say that if you're not weeping and mourning right now, you're sticking your head in a hole. But it's got to lead us to a place of prayer. Jesus, this is more than just an emotional response to a big couple of weeks in our nation. Your word shows us that the most powerful place we can be is on our knees before the King of Heaven. We fix our eyes on you, God. We say, heal our nation, King, please. Heal our nation. Would you heal our nation? We don't even have suggestions on how you can do it, God. But we just know, heal our nation. Where else can we run to, God? Who else can we look to? And the hurricanes are blowing and the winds are blowing. But we just want to hear the gentle whispers of heaven now. And as the church of Jesus Christ... At this time, we declare, heal our nation, King. We fix our eyes on the King of Kings. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And I pray to my feeble heart, I say, be strong and fix your eyes on Jesus. That though my, my heart might ache, my soul is saturated and satisfied in the presence of the living God. Heal our nation, God. Can you say that? Can you just pray that simple line? Will you heal our nation, King? Will you heal our nation, King? Will you pour out your spirit and heal our nation, God? Would you bring the plans and the purposes that you have for the spectacular nation that is a pioneer and a leader into the continent of Africa? Would you heal our nation, God, that a continent might be changed? Would you heal the tides that have been turning and the negative voices? Would you begin to speak louder, the purposes and the promises? Would you speak into economics and education? Would you speak into finances? Would you speak into every area of this life, this city, and this nation at this time? And we declare, heal our nation, God. Heal our nation, God. Heal our nation, God. Heal this nation, God. Oh, you are good and you are faithful, and you are kind, and you are glorious in all your ways, and you are more, more than able to heal this nation, God. So we place our trust in Jesus, and on our knees we will come humbly before you and ask God, would you heal this nation? Place your hands on your heart. Let it right. God, let faith arise in my heart today. Wherever my journey may take, and if it's into different nations, that's awesome. But if you've called me to live more days, hours or weeks in this nation, put faith in my heart to live. Put faith and courage in my heart to be a Nehemiah at this time, to be a Dorcas, to be a Caleb, to be those who rise up and rise beyond. So that you would get all the glory, King. That stories would be told in decades and centuries to come 
of what Jesus did in the nation of Africa. Revive us again, I pray, God. Revive us in your presence.